Let's pray, shall we? Praise your name, Lord. Father, tonight we just confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Tonight we reaffirm our belief that he is King of the whole earth and all the heavens and the heavens of the heavens. We confirm tonight our own faith that indeed, though he created all things, yet he has looked down on each one of us individually and has given us the wonderful gift of salvation. Father, I do thank you that you know the whole history of every person who is in this room. I thank you you know it from the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. And there is nothing they can do or say or think that you do not know right well, as the Bible says. Father, I want tonight, Father, that the things that we study together should add to our faith in your all provision for us and your all ability. Father, I just worship you with all my heart that Jesus proves himself Lord of our lives time and time again. And Father, tonight we open ourselves up to his lordship. And we're asking, Father, that in this apostate world in which we live, the things we might learn tonight may shine forth even as the bright morning star. Hallelujah. We thank you that Jesus is coming soon. We thank you these things that we're studying tonight will show us that he's coming and soon. And Father, I just pray you're going to allow us to walk down the street with our heads held high, knowing that we are the sons and daughters of the King who is coming to show his glory on this earth. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, Father, just open your word to us. May we understand your word. May we thoroughly grasp it, Father, and may it, Father, be the lamp to our feet that you promise it is going to be. Father, we don't know which way this country is going to go. We don't know the future. But what we do know is that the future is in your hands. And we're your beloved ones, and therefore we know that the future holds no terrors nor difficulties for us. For the one who loves us with all his heart is in control. Father, we state it tonight. We reaffirm our faith in that. In Jesus' mighty name. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts tonight be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. We're on the subject of prophecy, and in the first series on prophecy, and I'm dealing at the moment with fulfilled prophecy. Do you remember that um, we have seen, I think it's in talk number two, that faith and hope are two things that the Christian must have. Faith comes by understanding what God has done in the past. Hope is faith for the future, that having understood what he's done in the past, you can build yourself up in your most holy faith, as the Bible would say, and know which way you're going to go. The Christian today is the only person that can be relaxed about the world scene. I'll tell you this, in the Old Testament, it was probably worse than anything we see today. Sometimes there were armies traveling right across whole land masses. There were endless armies crossing through Jerusalem, crossing through Israel. And Israel still exists today because God has had his hand on them. Praise the name of Jesus. And we can know the same security in our own lives, providing that we really get to grips with the word of God. Last uh, week... I talked, or the week before was it, I talked about striking fulfillments of prophecy. And I gave the first talk, which gave us ammunition to fire at the people who are skeptical over the Bible. 
And do you remember the two glorious things that we saw? Oh, I was really thrilled because I just know that uh, the, the Lord illuminated them to us. We saw two marvelous prophecies given in the Old Testament. One, that Mount Zion would be plowed like a field. Hallelujah. And we saw that it's come to pass. And the second one was that the eastern or golden gate was going to be closed up and no person was going to come in until the Lord Jesus himself was going to enter into Jerusalem. Well, today I'm going to continue with that. I'm hoping to take two or perhaps three prophecies. And the first of them, because we were on Jerusalem last time, is still on the subject of Jerusalem. Let's have a very quick recap, just in case... Um, you've forgotten the layout as far as Jerusalem was concerned. Do you remember that when Jerusalem began, it began as a small hillock? That was all. This small hillock was sandwiched in between two valleys. Let me draw the valleys in. Down the east side of the plateau on which Jerusalem is built, there was a valley called the Kidron. K-I-D-R-O-N, the Kidron Valley. That went north South, north is at the top in the map. Along the bottom here, running from east to west, there was another valley. I hope you all know the names of these valleys by now, by the way. And this was the Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M valley. And that went a little way towards the west, and then it turned and started running parallel to the Kidron Valley. And so we have on the other side of Jerusalem, again, the Hinnom Valley, the Hinnom Valley running from north to south. And do you remember that these were the two big valleys, the Kidron to the east, the Hinnom to the west, but in between there was a much smaller valley. And I hope you can remember the name of it. Running just up here used to be a valley, this is between the Kidron and the Hinnom, called the Tyropean, T-Y-R-O-P-O-E-A-N, the Tyropean Valley. And when Jerusalem began, as you know, this is just recap, when Jerusalem began, it was sandwiched between the Kidron Valley and the Tyropean Valley. And it was a small hillock, and we call it Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, there we are, M-T-Z-I-O-N, Mount Zion was just a small little fortress. When David captured it from the Jebusites, you remember he wanted to build an enormous palace. And when he looked at the plans for his palace and he looked at Mount Zion, he found they couldn't fit. So he decided, well, there's another hill just to the north called Mount Moriah, so I'm going to move up there. And so to the north of uh, Mount Zion, he started building the temple of the Lord and his own palace. And you remember just after that, all that Jerusalem looked like was this, a small area which was square or rectangular, which we called the temple area, and there was a little tail to the south called Mount Zion. Right, so far so good. Then what happened, of course, is this, the Tyropean Valley started filling in. And as it filled in, Jerusalem, like all cities, which was growing, began sprawling over this filled-in valley. And soon it was spreading towards the west, and towards the southwest, and towards the south, and it was occupying a larger and larger area. We saw last time, of course, that Mount Zion, which was the centre of Jerusalem, had been prophesied to be nothing but ploughed fields. And I described the way in which uh, Mount Zion became plough, nothing but ploughed fields. And today has a few houses scattered about, but really is just uh, cultivated, cultivated land. Fine. 
Today, I'm going to talk about the development of Jerusalem. And not just old-time development either. I'm going to bring it right up to the present day. Because one man in the Bible spoke about the way that Jerusalem was going to develop right up to today, except that he did it 2,500 years ago. So would you turn with me, please, to Jeremiah and chapter 31... And I'm beginning verse 38 tonight. Praise God. At the time Jeremiah was writing this, Jerusalem was spreading down to the south and to the southwest. Now, this particular passage is Jeremiah 31, beginning verse 38, is one of those passages that most people quickly skim through. They've got to read the whole of uh, Jeremiah 31. It's in their reading list. So they skim through, and as soon as they finish, they close it and say, well, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. And meanwhile, they haven't understood a thing it's talking about because they've never stopped and bothered to look up where the things are. We've all done it, so I don't say that to condemn anyone. Let's just read it through, shall we? And I don't know about you, but on first reading, you might think, well, this isn't so world-shattering. But it is, you know. Let's have a read through. Beginning verse 38. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel, Hananiel, unto the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall compass about to Goath, and the whole valley of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields unto the brook of Idron, unto the corner of the horse gate, towards the east, shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up, nor thrown down any more forever. What an amazing few verses. Can you see that there are certain things that are mentioned there? And if you're going to understand this passage, you've got to understand where they are. For example, have a look at these. Uh, in verse 38, we've got a tower mentioned. Hananiel. There it is, Tower of Hananiel. Unto, then the second one, the gate of the corner. Then the next one, you've got a hill called Garab. Then you've got an area called Goath. Then you've got a valley called the Valley of Dead Bodies. Then you've got a place called the Ashes. And then all the fields unto the Brook of Kidron. And finally, you've got the corner of the horse gate towards the east. Now, when you read something like that in Scripture, quite simply, all the Lord is trying to say is, look, he's saying, these uh, particular features mentioned really do exist. They're geographical locations. And here he's saying this is going to be the course of development that Jerusalem is going to take. It's going to go from this place to this place, this place to this place, this place to this place, this place up there, up there, up here, and back down here. That's the exact course that it was going to take. At the time it was written, Jerusalem, as I've said, was spreading to the south. The interesting thing is that all these features named here are to the north of the city. And Jeremiah was actually saying, oh, the Lord's given me a vision of Jerusalem. He's shown me that all the expansion's going to be to the north. Right. There are two distinct phases. Let's have a look at this. Verse 38 describes what it's going to be unto the Lord. All right? Unto the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord, from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. Now, let's understand where these are. 
we have the temporal area at the time, well, this is uh, just after Jeremiah wrote, but before the time of Jesus, a square area called the area of the temple. The wall then goes down to the south and then cuts across along the Hinnom Valley and then starts going up north, up the Hinnom Valley to the west. At a certain point, it stopped and started going back towards the east. Generally speaking, you can see it on your own map, of course. Generally speaking, if you take the Golden Gate, which is on the east wall of the temple, and you draw a line from there going directly west, when it cuts the Hinnom Valley, that was the way that the north wall went. All right? And where the north wall and the wall to the west met was, it had a gate there, which was called the Gate of the Corner. So here we are, the gate of the corner, which is in verse 38, is where the north wall met the west wall, going up. The tower of Hananiel was actually on the northern wall of the temple. And so all verse 38 tells us is this, Ah, says Jeremiah, you're busy expanding down to the south and the southwest, but I've got news for you. Up to the time of the Lord's coming, there is going to be development which will begin on the northern wall. It will go north. It will then turn southwest and come down and end at the gate of the corner. That's what he says. He actually puts the development plan of Jerusalem. On this map, I've drawn it on. We see here, I hope you can see anyway, we've got the temple area and Mount Zion in green. The yellow area is actually the are the walls between the time of Jeremiah and Jesus. If I lift up the first of these, you can see the first development. And the purple area here shows the development described in verse 38. The interesting thing is that that development occurred already by the time that Jesus was on the earth. If any of you have uh, Bibles with maps at the back, you'll find that they normally draw a diagram of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus. And when they draw that diagram, it's always this particular area that they show. They show the temple area as a square, then another square at the bottom, a bigger square, including Mount Zion, and then they've got a northern area up on top. And when Jesus walked the earth, and when he came to Jerusalem, that was exactly the position that Jerusalem occupied. And by the way, these walls were built around this area. Jerusalem occupied the whole of the area and it was fortified within walls at that particular point of time. Uh, do you remember, of course, that it was about 200 years after Christ that all these walls were changed? The north wall was kept the same. The east and the west walls were kept the same. Do you remember the south wall was moved to the north so that actually Mount Zion was left outside? But anyway, that was the position as far as Jesus was concerned. Now, it doesn't stop there. The prophecy then goes on and starts talking about a bigger development of Jerusalem. The interesting thing is this, that up to the time that we saw last Bible study, that's Sultan Solomon the Magnificent, do you remember him? Up to that time, he, the walls of Jerusalem had hardly changed. All the development of verse 39 and 40 had not happened up to about 1534. That's 2,000 years after Jeremiah spoke. 
And all of a sudden, we turn to the Bible and we see that there is yet more development to occur. The interesting thing is, verse 39 and 40 have been fulfilled only in the last 50 years, as far as Jerusalem is concerned. 2,500 years ago, Jeremiah saw the exact course that Jerusalem would take when it developed. And it hasn't come to pass in any of the centuries before our very own. And were Bible believers all amazed? Hardly any, because hardly any understood this particular passage as far as Jeremiah was concerned. It's a tragedy. Yet we live in the greatest days of all. We see a passage like this coming to pass before our eyes. All right, now we have Jerusalem. Here it is. I think it's obvious to most people that if you were going to develop that city to the north, what you'd do probably is just build a few houses to the north, somewhere outside the city wall. And gradually, Jerusalem would expand to the north. Well, that's what you think. Except when the planners came about earlier this century and decided they were going to expand it, that's not how they did it. They decided to do it in a most unusual way. And the way that they've actually done it over the last 50, 60, 70 years is the exact way that Jeremiah actually brings out in this particular passage. There is a hill called Gareb. Gareb actually can be found, if you go to the northwest corner of Jerusalem, in other words, that's the corner which now lies to the northwest of the gate of the corner. Go to the northwest corner. If you continue on in that direction, you come to a hill called Gareb. And what Jeremiah said is, when Jerusalem's going to expand, it's not going to expand from this corner or this corner or this corner or this corner or this corner, but it's going to be from the northwest corner. And it's going to start expanding towards the northwest. He doesn't stop there. He then says, oh, and by the way, when it reaches Gareb, it's then going to continue on to a place called Goath. Now, actually, not many people know where Goath is. It's never been firmly identified. But most think it's just to the west of Gareb. So you go from the northwest corner out to the hill called Gareb, then slightly to the west, and you come to Goath. And Jeremiah says, that's the way that the development's going to occur. All right? I have drawn it in for us to see, if I put that there, and we can see it so far. There's the northwest corner, there's Gareb, and there's Goath at that particular point. Now, let's read it. Verse 39. With the development of verse 38 already complete, and that was done at the time of Jesus, then we get verse 39. And the measuring line, here's a surveyor's instrument for measuring. The surveying line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall compass about, which is turn about, Goath. So at Goath, Goath, the development's going to change direction, Jeremiah says. It's going to swing round Goath, and it's going to head off in a different direction. Verse 40 tells us the direction it's going to take. 2,500 years ago, by the way, this was written. Right. And it says it will go right up to the whole valley of dead bodies. The valley of dead bodies is another word for a cemetery. In other words, he says, there's a big cemetery outside Jerusalem. The development's going to go right up and cover that. Where do you find that? It's directly north of Gareb. Up here, directly north of Gareb. 
So Jeremiah says, right, Gareb goeth then north to the valley of the bodies. Doesn't stop there. Then he goes on and says this, and of the ashes. Now, what's the ashes? The ashes was the place where all the ashes from the temple were dumped. They had to get rid of them out of the temple. They used to burn the carcasses of the animals, and then all the ashes were removed, taken outside the city, and dumped. And they were dumped between Gareb and the Valley of Dead Bodies, right in the middle here. So Jeremiah says, right after they've done the cemetery, they're heading back towards Jerusalem. And they're next going to build in the center here. Then he says, and now we're heading over towards the east again, then he says, and all the fields unto the brook of Kidron. So now, all these areas directly north of the temple area are going to be built upon. And last of all, they'll swing right through those, and notice where they're going to end. They'll end on the corner of the horse gate towards the east. The horse gate is very easy for us. We saw the golden gate last time. Just to the north of the golden gate is a gate called the horse gate. And finally, Jeremiah says, the development will end to the north of the city, but specifically on the northeast corner of the city. And that's what Jeremiah actually lays down. In 1900, the city hadn't moved north, not at all. And so, if we were living last century, I couldn't have Bible-studied on this passage, except to say, oh, by the way, this is the way it's going to happen. But then the skeptic would have said, well... He might be right. There are six sides to the city. There are six corners. It could go from anyone. He might be right, but I don't think so. That's what they could have said last century. <laughs> We're now standing in 1979, and I can say, I'm terribly sorry, old chap. It's already happened. What, when did it happen? Between 1900 and 1925, Gareb and Goath were built on. Don't forget, a lot of Jews decided that Israel was going to become a nation again. They were Bible believers. So they thought, well, we live in America, we live in Russia, we live in this country, we'd like to go home. So off they went home. And the only place they were allotted were a hill called Gareb and a little area called Goath. And they started building their houses there. Very interesting. In 1925, a group of Jews arrived from the southern tip of Arabia called the Yemen. And they were looking around for an area, and the only area they'd be given was the worst area that they could think of, which was the Valley of Dead Bodies. So the uh, authorities said, well, the only area you can have is the cemetery. So in 1925, the Yemeni Jews arrived, and they started building their houses here in the Valley of Dead Bodies. If you had arrived, by the way, in Jerusalem before 1930, you could have visited this area and picked up a handful of dust, dust and ashes. Before 1930, the dust was just lying around all over the ground. Uh-huh. Can you do it now? No, you can't. Why? Because in 1930, they decided the next place they were going to build was on the ashes. And so they did, 1930. But it stopped just about then. And here we have the amazing thing. I, I've studied cities, and I've never heard of a development of a city going quite like this. It's not really done, you know, to put all the development on one side and not just spread it out along that side, just start, keep going in that direction. And then all of a sudden, when you've had enough, you, you tend to turn around slightly, and, uh, and so you head gradually back towards the city. It's unheard of. And yet this is exactly what they did. And then independence came, 1948. And you know what happened? There was a rush of Jews into Jerusalem. 
Well, where was the only place left for them to go? Well, it was the, Kidr- the fields of the Kidron. And so here, north of the area, they started to build houses. This is after 1948. That is within most of our lifetime here, right? And in 1948, they started building at that particular point. Guess where they're building today? Yes, that's right. Just above the horse gate here, the corner of the horse gate. They have completed the whole circle as far as the development of Jerusalem is concerned. Without any reference to the Bible, without any reference at all to the Bible, they have decided that's the way the development is going to go. Here is a passage written 2,500 years ago in which every single step of the way is outlined. But have you noticed the end of the the passage? Some people say, oh, in every generation there have been people believing that the Lord was going to return. We're no different to anyone else. You are. Hallelujah. Just have a look what it says at the end. And the city shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. And I'll tell you this, there is not a prophecy about Chichester that says that, and there is not a prophecy about Bognor Regis that says that. But there is a prophecy about Jerusalem. In the natural, we would say, oh, never live in Jerusalem. What, with Iran having just fallen to the Ayatollah? Never. But why not? For God says Jerusalem's got, certainly got a future. He's never said that about Bognor Regis. Not yet. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It is going to come to pass. In fact, the next step of this prophecy is the personal return of the Lord to protect Jerusalem. We're almost there, folks. That's what this passage actually says. Praise the Lord. Now, isn't it amazing? Here is a a major... I tell you this. Bible critics would have a great problem over this passage because they can go and look up the records themselves and they can see the development that it's followed. God shows us through this passage a number of things. One, he knows everything that's going to happen long before it can happen. And two, he's prepared to tell us about it. Praise God. There is a little example. That's only three verses in Scripture. And yet I would say to the, the skeptic, a mind-boggling passage. Praise God. All right. With that, I'm ending on Jerusalem. This was just a little tailpiece added to complete Jerusalem. And now I'm moving to one of the real big city-states of the ancient world. And for the next um, example of fulfilled prophecy, I'm going to take this little city called Tyre. E-Y-R-E. Tyre. And today, I suppose most people have never heard of it. In the ancient world, you'd heard of Tyre. Ancient Tyre was an amazing city, one of the most outstanding cities of the ancient world. It uh, was built in Lebanon. For those of you who don't know your geography, let me just tell you where Lebanon is. If you go to the flat end of the Mediterranean, so the Mediterranean comes, there was such an easy map to draw. There we are, the flat end of the Mediterranean. You've got Israel down in the southern portion, and you have a little country up here called Lebanon. Lebanon, about halfway up. And Tyre was actually a city-state on the coast of Lebanon. Here it is, T-Y-R-E. Famous because of Tyre and Sidon. Fine. 
Here was an amazing group of people. This was what we call a Phoenician city. P-H-O-N-E-C-I-A-N. Phoenician city. And the Phoenicians were the great seafarers of the ancient world. Here they were. If ever you wanted to catch a ship, you used to take a Phoenician boat every time. Today, if you want a tugboat man, you go to Holland. In the ancient world, if you wanted a lift on a Cunard liner, you'd always ring Lebanon, and specifically Tyre. They were great, great seamen. They traveled all over the Mediterranean area, and they had ports all over the Mediterranean. Tyre was the headquarters. They also had another one in North Africa, which was called Carthage. C-A-R-T-H-A-G-E. Carthage. And Spain was their other base. And here were people who were not afraid to go into the Atlantic. And they had bases all the way up the Atlantic coast of Spain. And there's quite a lot of evidence that before Jesus came to the earth, the Phoenicians had actually traveled to the United States of America. Except it wasn't called the United States of America then. All right? Over to America. They'd sailed in their fairly small boats right across the Atlantic. They were fearless. Now, as soon as you get a group of people who are seamen, you find they're traders, right? And the, the Tyrians, the people of Tyre, were the richest people of the ancient world. Wow. They really were rich. Filthy rich, as we would say today. They used to trade in all sorts of things, in silver. They had a massive silver market in tin, in lead, in iron, in ebony, which is a type of wood, in spices, even in coral, they used to uh, do some trade. But they were most known for one particular item. I wonder whether anyone knows what item it was. It was purple cloth, and they had the monopoly of it. Everyone wanted purple cloth, and if you wanted purple cloth, you'd always head for Tyre, and you'd you'd make sure that you got a person who lived in Tyre, and you say, oh, could you get me some of that pur purple cloth that you produce? You see, they really produced it well. They had the monopoly of the market. And Tyre was an amazing place, absolutely amazing. Um, another thing it was noted for, apart from its riches, was this. No one had ever beaten Tyre in a war. The reason for that is quite simple. If you have uh, the mainland coming down here, Tyre was a city which was in two parts. There was a bit that was built onto the mainland, and there was a bit on an island half a mile off the shore. And it was very convenient. The mainland city, uh, when it was at its maximum, used to stretch for 20 miles up the coast, although normally it was about seven miles. But this little island was squashed in, right? It was cut off from the mainland, rather like the British Isles are cut off, except it was very, very small island indeed, by half a mile of sea. And do you know what used to happen? All the people, the big armies, especially the Assyrians, they wanted to take the wealth of the Tyre. And so the armies used to pour down towards Tyre. All the people living on the mainland did was start packing their trunks with all their silver, all their gold, and they used to whistle for a ship. They had a huge navy. And they used to load all their goods onto the ship and out to the island. They all went. And the Assyrians used to rush into the mainland city, and there was nothing there. <laughs> and they used to take the whole city and look around, absolutely nothing. Then they used to come to the coast, and they used to shout across, uh, Excuse me, um, we're going to defeat you unless you come over to the mainland. 
And the Tyrians used to say, could you speak up a bit? Can't hear you. And try as they, could, they, they may, they were never able to take this island fortress. It was an amazing place. It had walls, two sets of walls right the way around the island. Two sets. And they were 150 feet tall. Sheer wall. And all you could do was float about in your boat and gaze up at this huge wall, 150 feet. On the inner wall, it was 100 feet wide. And they used to have chariot races to amuse themselves while the Assyrians were shouting at them from the banks, you see. And they were absolutely impregnable. Apart from that, of course, they had the largest navy that the world had ever seen up to that time. They had two ports. They had the Sidonian harbor to the north of the island and the Egyptian harbor to the south of the island. And all the ships used to gather in. Now, can you imagine? The Assyrians, who had hardly ever seen a boat, used to try and launch out in a boat, and all of a sudden, one of the Tyrian man-of-wars would start lumbering down towards it. And they never succeeded. They never, ever, ever succeeded in capturing Tyre. They had a good old try as well, right? You can name king after king after king who tried to take Tyre. And the Tyrians just, well, they sometimes used to pay them some money, and say, well, all right, go away, here's some money, off you go. And they tried and tried. Shalmaneser IV tried and tried, he failed. Sennacherib tried and tried, and he failed. Ezahaddon tried and tried, and he failed. Ashurbanipal tried and tried, and he failed. And there were the Tyrians getting richer and richer and richer and richer, and they thought they were impregnable. Right, so far, so good. They had certain other advantages. May I just mention this? On the island here, on the island, there are springs which still flow today, and every day 10 million gallons of fresh water used to flow up through the earth. So they were fine. They got absolutely everything they'd needed. And sometimes the population of the island went up to 40,000 people living on this small island inside of the wards, and they had a really wonderful time. No one had ever beaten them. But unfortunately for them, one day, instead of being helpful to Israel, as they had been when Solomon had built the temple, they turned anti-Semitic. They decided that they were going to dislike the Jews. And it was at that point that God said, oh, I see, right, if you're going to dislike the Jews, I'm going to dislike you. No one's ever defeated you yet. The Assyrians, the greatest nation that the world has ever seen, has never defeated you. But I'm going to defeat you, said God. And who did he give the message to? Two poor Israeli prophets. They didn't have an army. They knew nothing about uh, sea warfare at all. And there they were, walking around, saying huge words about Tyre. Let's have a look, shall we, at two of the prophecies relating to Tyre, and realize that in the ancient world, the people would have laughed their heads off. What ridiculous Zechariah. Turn with me to Zechariah and chapter 9. Zechariah and chapter 9. All right, and I'm beginning verse 3. On this map, if you ignore the yellow for the moment, which is sand, here's the island, and it's half a mile to the mainland. Fine. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2 simply say that God wants to have a word with some nations, and Tyre's one of the nations. Begins verse 3. All right? 
And it says here about Tyre, and Tyre did build herself a stronghold, that's the island, a heavily fortified place where she thought she was safe, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Both of those are pictures of how wealthy Tyre was. Everyone had been defeated when they came to Tyre. Verse 4, now out of the mouth of Zechariah comes the word of the Lord. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. The Lord is going to throw her off the island. That's what it says. And he will smite her power in the sea, so her whole navy is going to be destroyed, and she shall be devoured with fire. And that's what Zechariah said. And the people laughed because no one had managed yet to defeat Tyre. All right, let's see the second prophet. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Now, to show you how important Tyre was, do you know Ezekiel spends three and a bit chapters dealing with Tyre? Three and a bit. I'm only going to take one of the chapters today. All right? I'm taking Ezekiel chapter 26, and we're not going to deal with Ezekiel chapter 27 or 28. Chapter 27 simply has a picture of Tyre like a ship. And God says, oh, by the way, you remind me of a ship. But the ship you remind me of is one that's about to be shipwrecked. That's what he says. That's the whole of Ezekiel 27 done for you. That's quick, wasn't it? Uh, Chapter 28 deals with the rulers of Tyre. But chapter 26 is the one in which he talks about the city. And in this passage, he makes... Uh, seven prophecies about the city. Look at it. Verse 1, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me. This is 587 B.C. 587 B.C. Son of man, that's Ezekiel, because that Tyrus hath said against Jerusalem, and the rest of the verse, by the way, deals with what Tyrus said about Jerusalem. Aha! She is broken that was the gates of the people. She's turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Oh, yes. Israel's having a hard time. Isn't that wonderful news, everybody? I think I can get rich out of this. That's what Tyre was saying. And God says, oh, if that's what you say in your heart, I've got something to say to you and something very important to say to you. Verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against thee, O Tyre. Where you see Tyrus, it's the Latin way of saying Tyre, but it's supposed to be Tyre. I'm against thee, Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against thee as as the sea causeth his waves to come up. So we see the first. Number one, prophecy number one, many nations will come up. Now, for us, that is not a significant prophecy, because many nations had already come up to Tyre, you see? And if it continued, well, there's nothing significant about that. So, for the moment, I'm going to discount that one. But there's the first. Uh, Verse 4, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus, and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock. Number two, going to be bare going to be bare rock. Tyre was. That's number two. Let's read on. Uh, Verse 5, 
It shall be a place for the spreading of nets. These are fishermen's nets. They're going to put them out on you to dry, says the Lord. That's how much use you're going to be. Sorry if there are any fishermen here. Uh, number three, a place for the spreading of nets. Number four, the point about spreading of nets is you need a large area where no one's living. And Tyre had a huge population. They had skyscrapers on the island. And God says, oh, by the way, those skyscrapers are going to go. I'm going to spread my nets out there. You see, that's what he said. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord, and it shall come become a spoil to the nations. Verse 6, and her daughters which are in the field. That little phrase, her daughters which are in the field, means the mainland city, right? The city on the mainland, that is, shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Number 4, mainland Tyre, destroyed. Right? That's the next. Uh, Verse 7. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring up on Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots and with horsemen and companies and much people. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field. In other words, the mainland of Tyre will be destroyed and the fifth prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar will do it. Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the mainland part of Tyre. Right? That's what we get from verse 7 and verse 8. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field. He shall make a fort against thee and cast a mound against thee and lift up the buckler against thee. These are ancient phrases for warfare in the ancient world. He shall set engines of war against thy walls. With his axes he shall break down thy towers. By reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. Thy wall shall shake at the noise of the horsemen and of the wheels and of the chariots when he shall enter into thy gates as men enter into a city wherein is made a breach. With the hooves of his horses shall he tread down all thy streets. He shall slay thy people by the sword and thy strong garrisons shall go down to the ground. And they shall make a spoil of thy riches, and make a prey of thy merchandise. And they shall break down thy walls, and destroy thy pleasant houses. And here's the next one, number six, uh, towards the end of verse 12. They shall lay thy stones, and thy timber, and thy dust in the midst of the water. Isn't that interesting? So, stones and building material... will be put in the sea. Now, that's a most unusual prophecy because once you destroyed a city, you didn't bother to clear the land and put all the stuff in the sea. It's not something that you would do naturally. But there we are. That's what it says is going to happen. Fine. Okay. And uh, we carry on, verse 13. And I will cause the noise of thy songs to cease, and the sound of thy harp shall be no more heard. And I will make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And verse 14 gives us number seven. Number seven, Tyre will be built no more. Right. Now, there are certain prophecies. Good. Um, 
we've got to look at the fulfillment of this. And the great thing is that history records the exact fulfillment as it occurred. And some of the things occurred just after Ezekiel wrote. For example, it was in 573, 573 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar decided it was time he went and did Tyre. He'd had enough of Tyre. So all of a sudden, he decided to take his armies, great king of Babylon, he's going to start attacking Tyre. Do you know what he did? He walked into the mainland part of Tyre. Here's the mainland area. And he just demolished the whole place. He demolished everything in sight. For 13 years, for 13 years, he laid siege to Tyre. 13 years. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And he fulfilled in 573, number 4, mainland Tyre, to be destroyed. And number 5, Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the mainland. But I'll tell you something. There is no account in history of him ever destroying the island of Tyre. And the worst thing was that he was doing this for God. You see, Tyre had become against God, against God's purposes. And God had raised Nebuchadnezzar up to go and show them what for. But God is no man's debtor. And when you've done a work for God, he always pays you well. But unfortunately, they did the old trick to Nebuchadnezzar. He marched into the mainland city, and what? There wasn't one ducat left. Absolutely not one ducat left anywhere. And he looked round the city, not a sou was left. And so God, graciously, because he fulfilled the purpose that God had for him, graciously said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you've done a good job. I'm not going to give you the island of Tyre. Oh, no. You can have Egypt, he says. Keep your finger in the place, and let's just have a look at that, by the way. In Ezekiel uh, 29, verse 18 and 19. Ezekiel 29, 18 and 19. And it came to pass, sorry, verse 18. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was peeled. That is, simply means they were fighting for so long, the armor started wearing their hair off their heads and started wearing the skin off their shoulders. Thirteen years of fighting in armor. That's what it means. All right? Yet had he no wages, nor his army, for Tyre, for the service that he had served against it. In other words, they didn't capture the main uh, island, you see. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'll give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take her multitude, and take her spoil, and take her prey, and it will be the wages for his army. And so Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden says, I know what, I'll go down to Egypt. And Egypt was even more anti-Semitic than Tyre. And off he went, he conquered the land of Egypt and got paid for what he'd done as far as Tyre was concerned. But to Tyre it was a warning. Now listen, Tyre, that's the first bit of the prophecy come true. If you repent, we'll cancel the rest. But if you don't, I'll tell you, your end is coming. Did they do anything? They did nothing at all. And so... A few centuries passed, and we reached the year 333 BC. And in 333 BC, a man of 24 decides that he wants to go and capture Egypt now. And so he moves down from Greece, where he is. I'm talking about Alexander the Great. And, and down he pops on his way to Egypt. 
He's got 30,000 troops and he's got 5,000 cavalry. But of course, as he's going past Tyre, he thinks, hello, there's Tyre. I've heard of Tyre, and if I'm not careful, they're going to cut me off when I'm in Egypt. I think I better deal with them. So he goes along into the mainland, which is nothing but rubble, and he goes to the shore and he says, excuse me, he says, I hear you've got a temple to a god over in there. Do you think I can come across and just worship on my way down? My Tyrians say, we've heard of this Alexander the Great. I don't think we will. I know what he'll do. He'll come over together with a huge bodyguard of soldiers. And as soon as he's in the gate, we'll never get him out. So they said, terribly sorry, we're busy at the moment. So Alexander says, right, we're going to capture that city. I'm going to worship at that temple if it kills me. And so they start doing it. Now, he's got no navy. The Tyrians have got a big navy. So he says, well, there's only one way. We've got to go over on dry land. So what are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to build a land bridge from the mainland right over to the island. That's what we're going to do. 200 feet wide. And the whole army can march across and we can take the island. Isn't that wonderful? Right, are there any bricks? Are there any stones? The water's 18 feet deep. We've got to fill it up. Oh, look at all these stones that Nebuchadnezzar's left us. The mainland. <laughs> well, 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 well. Hey, come on, you lads. And so all the army get busy. And the result? Alexander, and he's, he's a complete atheist. He fulfills number six. Stones and building material will be put in the sea. That's number six. They start dumping them. You can still see them today, by the way. There are pillars. There are stones all over the sea, under the water at that place. And you can look down and actually gaze at them under the sea. There we are. And so they start dumping material into the sea. The Tyrians don't like this. Never seen this before. So what do they start doing? They start hurling things on top of the soldiers. And they had a terrible time, terrible time. Sometimes the storm would come away and wash the thing away. This road that they were building, by the way, is called a mole, M-O-L-E, M-O-L-E. And the storm sometimes came and washed the thing away. And then the work was delayed because every time they started to build, hot oil would start pouring, pouring on their heads from above. And hot sand and stones and all types of rubbish like that. So do you know what they did? They did two things. They built a shelter called a tortoise. And they put this big shelter up and the men had to work underneath this tortoise with hot oil pouring on top of it. And it kept catching fire. And the other thing they did, they built a very tall tower, taller than the walls, and they started throwing things back at the Tyrians. <laughs> That's what they did. I'm not going into the whole details, but there are some marvellous stories that come from it. Do you know, it took uh, seven months for them to build the road. Seven months to connect, here it is, uh, this mole, the mainland, with the island. Seven months. And at the end of the seven months, they arrived, and I would tell you, they were angry. These Tyrians had done cruel things. Whenever they captured a Greek soldier, they'd hung him on a hook over the walls of the city and just let him die slowly. And they were furious about this. And they broke into the city. 8,000 people were slaughtered in one day. 2,000 of the Tyrian soldiers were crucified all around the city wall. And 30,000 of the Tyrians were sold into slavery by the Greeks. By the Greeks. That was it. And then Alexander walked across. He worshipped in the temple. 
And on his way out, he threw a lighted match or whatever it was into the buildings. And Tyre was burnt to the ground. Mm -hmm. And off he went down and within, as you know, the next 11 years or so, he conquered the known world. That was Alexander. And you know, Tyre from that time on wasn't an island anymore. Oh, they began to get a bit rich again. People came back. But you see, now every time they were attacked, the people just walked straight in to Tyre. And there were dwellings on the island until about 1291 AD, when finally the people had had enough. And they said, we're, we're abandoning this place. In 1291 was the last city, and it was destroyed. And from that time to this, there has been no city on this peninsula. What's happened is sand and silt have collected all the way round this mole that Alexander built. And now this island, which was so proud and so great, is now connected to the mainland. Okay, let's see what we've got. Number one, now fulfilled, many nations come up. Going to be a bare rock, yes, both of them were. The mainland was when they started chucking the buildings into the sea. Tyre is now because there are no buildings there. So that's that one fulfilled, number two. Number three, a place for the spreading of nets. Do you know the only people who live there now? Fishermen. And do you know what they use to dry their nets and to mend them? They use the old foundations of the city of Tyre. And today you can go. There are many photographs. People normally come back with photographs of the fishermen spreading their nets over the, over the ruins of Tyre. So number three is fulfilled. Stones, number six, stones and building materials put in the sea, fulfilled. Number seven, Tyre will be built no more. That also has been fulfilled. Who at the time of Ezekiel or Zechariah could have guessed the end that was coming? And yet God, through seven prophecies, predicted exactly the course that was going to be taken for Tyre to be no more. He was going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander. This is amazing. The chances of all seven of these being fulfilled is staggering and beyond belief. But God, who knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, he saw in his wisdom what would happen. And he decided that he wanted to prove that his word was true and trustworthy to us. And that's why he's written it all down in Ezekiel chapter 26. Praise God. I praise God for Tyre. I praise God for the witness that it is to us. I praise God for every pillar that's now lying beneath the sea. They all show we've got the God who's winning in history. Hallelujah. We've got the God who is directing the affairs of man. And we've got the God who, in the end, will win victory, not only against our enemies, but against every demon, against every evil force that has raised his, its hand against him. To him be the glory. He's the great victor. Hallelujah. Next week, I'm going to deal with prophecies concerning Babylon. God bless you.